0: Psalm 110, and we'll read this psalm as we prepare our hearts to hear the Word of God. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing. In the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn. And will not repent. Thou art a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand. Shall strike through the kings. In the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads. Over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Amen. We trust the Lord will bless his word to our hearts for his name's sake. Before we go any further, I want us to seek the face of our God in prayer and ask him to meet with us in his word. Father in heaven, now we would pray that you will bless this time, bless us as we consider the things that have to do with the eternal covenants between yourself and your son, that which is the very glorious hope of the people of God. We pray that thou will allow us to see again the Lord Jesus and the word. We pray that thou will move upon our hearts. That we would believe. That we would hold. Oh God that we would love these things. That thou dost send forth to us as your record. That eternal life is given in the person of Christ. We pray that thou will now bless each thought. Direct every thought. And we pray against the wicked one who would seek to distract. We pray that thou allow him no liberty here. And we pray that thou give us a time with thyself. Meet our needs. Speak to our hearts. Encourage and build up our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go further, I'm going to read to you a portion of Scripture found in Matthew chapter 22, for it has a direct connection to what we have just read from Psalm 110. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, we read of a time in which the Lord was beset by the Pharisees, who again were seeking to accuse him and to cause him to have some fault that would be beheld in the eyes of those that are around, the people that were there. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. We read this. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him The Son of David. He saith unto them then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying The Lord said unto me, Lord sit thou my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither did any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. In this portion that we just read, we read that the Lord Jesus faced the Pharisees in another instance of what appears to be an unending challenge by the Pharisees of the Lord's person and his place as the Son of God. However, what the Lord says to his accusers on this occasion puts an end to their questions and accusations for good. The question that ended their attempts to trip up the Lord by his words was a question founded on the first verse of our reading from Psalm 110. In fact, we'd say this, that the words of Psalm 110, verse 1, served as the sword stroke that undid the craftiness of the Pharisees, a stroke which they could not recover from. If Christ was the son of David... How could David call his son Lord? Well, we have to ask at this point, was the Lord's question a riddle? A riddle so great that the Pharisees just gave up with uh, hopelessness, their defiant craftiness? Well, I would say that that is not at all likely. The Lord's question was not unanswerable. The Pharisees likely knew the right answer. But they were going to refuse to offer it. The answer was that David and the spirit called him Lord because the one so addressed by Jehovah was God as well. But even more than that, even though they would refuse to allow that to be The answer to Christ. The Pharisees were also well aware of the message. Of Psalm 110. They knew that the great thrust of that Psalm. Was that the Lord God was going to completely subdue. And undo. The enemies of the Messiah. They knew that this was a message of judgment to them. And so. They went away in anger, but they also went away under the weight of condemnation. There's nothing that they could say. There's nothing more that they could try to do because they realize indeed that Christ had just pronounced upon them a sentence of condemnation. So, how does this incident apply to us? Now, the incident with the Pharisees is not what I want us to consider, really. But rather, I want us to think about the scripture that the Lord Jesus refers to. Psalm 110 is a wonderful word that dovetails, in many ways, with the message that we considered a couple weeks ago from Isaiah chapter 42. Then, we considered the covenantal words, that were offered by the Father to the Son about the nature and the surety of success of Christ's work of redemption. Psalm 110 offers the Father's guarantee to His Son that as a result of His success all will be put under His feet And the enemies of righteousness will be put away. Now we might back up and say, has the Father really guaranteed this? Is that something that you can see here? Again, look at verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. That's a guarantee. But consider this too. Psalm 111. Also adds to this message with statements such as this. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. And he sent redemption unto his people. Who was redemption? The Lord Jesus. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. There's the terms of a guarantee. Now the reason that we're going to think on this guarantee to Christ Is because any guarantee to Christ is also a guarantee to us as well. Of course, we will not be given the position that Christ is given, but all the results of his triumph are to be completely and utterly enjoyed by those that he came to save. So, with that in mind, I'm going to set before you two scriptures. That I want us to hold in our thinking. Because they indeed establish. The fact that what has been guaranteed to Christ. Has in fact been guaranteed to us. The first is very familiar. 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. For all the promises. Or may we put it this way. All the covenant agreement. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. But then also I want you to think about this short word from Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 5 we read, Even when we were dead in sin, Hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Ye are saved. And hath raised us up together. And made us sit together. In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come. He might show the exceeding riches. Of his grace in His kindness toward us, through Christ. In other words, God the Father has a purpose. He has that which He has guaranteed to Christ, and He has, in His own mind, set us in the very same place as Christ, in His mind. We are one with Christ, to the extent, or to the end, that we would enjoy All the graces and all the riches of his mercies that have been attained by the blood of Christ. So my subject this morning is this. The exceeding riches of his grace that we just read of are guaranteed in his kindness to us because they are guaranteed to Christ. The guarantee of God's grace, the guarantee of God's mercy, the guarantee of God's forbearance, the guarantee of God's assistance in all things, spiritually as well as in this world, are guaranteed to us. Why? Because they've been guaranteed to the Lord Jesus. Now we might ask, when? How? How does this portion that we read today that we're taking as our text indicate what I just said about the guarantee of God. Well I will notice a few plain points from our reading and I want us to notice four guarantees that are presented here. The first guarantee the father says to the son in verse 1 sit thou at my right Hand, So the first guarantee has to do with the seating of the sun. The seating of the sun. Now we can certainly hear the words of a covenant in that verse. How magnificent, how powerful are those words. The Lord said. The Lord said unto my Lord. The Lord said. Here is the name of the covenant God. Here is the proper name of the Lord. The Lord said, here are words that are spoken in connection with the name of the Lord, which is never associated with anything other than certainty. Thus saith the Lord. Those words, when you read them in scripture, indicate that what is about to follow is absolutely certain. Here is a thus saith the Lord, and the Lord said unto my Lord. And let me say this there can be nothing that you will be able to rest your soul on like words such as these. Here is the purpose, and here is the agreement of eternity. When the Lord speaks in this way, there is nothing but surety. But what is the subject? What is it that is being said here? What are these sure words about? Well, it is simply this that Christ is to sit at the right hand until the entire covenant is fulfilled. Sit thou at my right hand until. Sit there until. Now, we'd have to ask the question, a logical question, a necessary question. What does sitting at the right hand mean? What does that indicate? Well, I think the first thing you'd have to say is that it means that the Lord Jesus has been and is exalted because he succeeded. The Father sees the glorious success of the Lord Jesus and he says, sit thou at my right hand. Now you say, well, that's, that seems somewhat obvious. Yes, it is. And it ought to be something that's a subject of our pondering and our contemplation. Christ is honored. Christ is adored. And I will say this. This verse would indicate that the adoration and the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus is not just something that is done or offered by heaven's host. But of the Father as well. The Father adores Christ. And He honors Him by saying, Sit at my right hand. He succeeded. Now, this is a point of doctrinal truth that is inexplicably doubted by so many. And I say this doubt. That Christ succeeded and has this exalted, honored, and adored position. Well, this doubt is simply framed in the minds of some as this. That Christ came not to do, but to offer. That Christ came to offer opportunities to fallen men but not to actually secure redemption. And somehow, the thought that Christ offers it to men, but doesn't actually go ahead and do the work that achieves the purpose of God, somehow, in that thinking, that makes all men on an equal footing with God, and makes God fair. If he just offers it, then God is completely fair, He's not going to try to move one more than another, and so on and so forth. My question about that is, how could Christ be exalted as fulfilling all the plan of God if that were the case? He is exalted because he succeeded. And in my response to those that would have that kind of a mindset or that kind of position is simply this. Start your thinking with Christ. Start your thinking with Christ. Then interpret things that follow in the light of that. Don't start your thinking with what's fair to man. You'll always come up with a wrong answer. Yes, the seeding of the son is an indication that he was exalted because he succeeded. But I want you to see even more plainly as we answer the question, how does this seeding affect us? Here's my second thought under this head. We have... Our king. We have our king. You know, in the days of Samuel, Israel wanted a king to fight their battles and to defeat their enemies. When the enemies were subdued, then of course it would have been the conclusion of the people that there would be peace and there would be plenty. My point is this. We have our king. We have our king. Our king will have all his enemies put before him as a footstool. None will stand. All will fall. All the enemies of the Lord Jesus will be subdued. That is the guarantee of God the Father. Well, we want to ask the question, who are his enemies? Well, let's come back to my statement just a second. He is our king. Therefore, our enemies are his enemies. So we can make this conclusion. This is not a leap. It's just a plain, simple, logical deduction. All that stands against the guarantee of God on that. Our sin... Our unbelief. All the angels of hell. Will be put under the feet of Christ. When? When is it going to happen? Well my friends it's already happened. When did he defeat them? The answer is. At the cross. And we must note that. When all the enemies of Christ. Were put under his feet. Yes. Yes. His heel was wounded, but their head was crushed. The guarantee of God that all that stands against you, child of God, you might think in your mind, but all these things are against me, all these things are uh, too much for me. My heart is not right, my faith is so weak, my propensities. Are so strong, all these different things, all these enemies, oh boy they line up and boy how do I see them flashing their swords and I hear them howling that my death is certain. God has it guaranteed that the blood of Jesus Christ his son shall cleanse us from all sin. That is an absolute, that is an unchanging surety that is absolutely certain because thus saith the Lord child of God, I'm here this morning to just encourage you, you have your king. Let that thrill you. He has been promised from eternity that he will have that position. And he has it now. He's seated in the king's position. We have our king. So the first guarantee, if you will, of the Father to the Son that directly affects us is that Christ is seated. He's seated as our King. The second guarantee you read in verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Again the Lord the covenant making and keeping God will send out that which is of Christ, for Christ, and in Christ to bring about the great victory that characterizes the reign of the Lord Jesus. Now, there is a somewhat unusual statement here. In fact, this is the only time in Scripture that it's ever mentioned, and that is the rod of thy strength. It's a unique term. I think it makes it a little bit easier for us to understand if we also understand that that word that's in our scriptures here as the word strength is also oftentimes translated the word power. So the rod of thy power is what we might be looking at here as the wording of verse 2. This rod that's referred to is a rod that's like unto the rod of Moses. At least that's what most Bible scholars would say. Here's an allusion to the Rod that Moses held in his hand when the Lord freed the people of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. It was known at that point as the rod of God's power. The rod was lifted at different times to bring the power of God to bear on a hardened Pharaoh. So we might ask, is this statement here that we have in verse 2. The promise or the guarantee of providential judgment of God. God on the wicked Uh, yes yes it does include that God will judge the ungodly God will judge those that are wicked it's going to happen But also, you might even say this. It is also that which God sends forth to fully accomplish the subduing of all things before Christ. Not only to judge the wicked, but to subdue those things before the Lord Jesus. A rod that breaks the stony resistance of men's hearts. So, again, the rod of his strength can be seen in two ways. First, as I mentioned, The rod is the sentence of God on sin. I think this is something that the Pharisees undoubtedly understood the Lord Jesus to be pointing to. When he brings them to this passage and asks his question. Verses 5 through 7 speak of this rod of judgment. The rod of Christ's power will bring the wicked to judgment. In fact, you see it in Revelation a couple of times. Revelation chapter 6 speaks of those that see the, the coming of the Son of God in power and great glory. And they call upon the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them lest they be those who are judged by the lion of the tribe of Judah. Chapter 19, you read of the Lord Jesus going forth on the white horse out of his mouth comes that sharp sword, but in his hand is the rod of iron. Indeed, you have to say, here's the Lord God saying to his son, you indeed will be judge. You will not be left without a vengeance on those that were against you, rebelled against your word, blasphemed against you. There will be judgment. But here's the other thing I want us to see. And this is the point at which I want us to come. Because I want us to think more. How does this apply to us again? The second application is that the rod. Is the rod of Psalm 23. The rod of Psalm 23. With thy rod and thy staff. We are comforted. Here is a word of the guarantee. Of the comfort of the saint. It is the word of God's healing of the hearts of the saints. Psalm 107 verse 20. A wonderful verse. Maybe we should make it a memory verse. He sent his word and healed them. There is that which is sent from the father. Sent out of Zion as it were. To do a work of judgment. It is a rod of iron to the ungodly. But it is a rod that heals. Much like the rod that is lain on the shoulder of The sheep. What is that rod? What is it that heals? What is it that's being used to bring comfort? Well let me submit to you a couple of verses. You know these verses. Romans chapter 1. And verse 16. For I am not ashamed. Of the gospel. Of Christ. For it is. The power. Of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek 1st Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but unto us which are saved it is the power of God 2nd Timothy chapter 1 verse 8 be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Over and over, the gospel is referred to as the power, the rod of power of God. So the point is this. The power of God, or The rod of his strength is that which is sent of God to secure the glory and victory of Christ. It is not something of our making. It is not something of our doing. But the power of the gospel will not fail. For it is that which gains the promises of God for Christ. It is for Christ. You say, what are you saying? child of God all that you need for your heart's comfort all that you need for your strengthening all you need for your food of soul and heart and mind is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ that gospel which speaks of the success of Christ in his work to put away your sins are you now reconciled to God are you right with God if you believe in the Lord Jesus, that is an unchanging status for you. The power of the gospel. Think about the gospel. Think about what it does. Think about what it says. Do you have to be ruled by your sin? Doesn't the gospel say that the sin shall have no more dominion over you? Isn't it saying that Jesus Christ is the one who takes away sin? How many promises do you have in the gospel? How many applications do Of the work of the Lord Jesus are there for your heart and your mind and your soul in the message of Christ's successful work at Calvary. The Father says, I guarantee to you my son, that I will send out I will send the gospel and it will do what it is intended to do in agreement from eternity past. Judge the wicked it will comfort the saint. I guarantee it. Third. When you go to the third verse of Psalm 110, You see the guarantee of the sanctifying of the people. The sanctifying of the people. Thy people shall be made willing in the day of thy power. Listen to the description. In the beauty of holiness. The sanctifying of the people. Now, this verse has a very interesting message to it. It simply says and it's always connected to the preceding verse, it simply says that the effects, the effects of the rod of his strength that is sent out will be all that God intends. I'm going to send out this rod for this reason. Now, what's it going to do? It's going to have an effect in the hearts of my people. Now, the words that we have for this verse in the King James doesn't really present the richness of this truth. The effect that we're reading of here is far more than a willing heart in the people of God to do or to live for Christ. It's more than just a, "Oh, I'm 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 in agreement. Yeah, I'm I'm ready. I'm in I'm uh, willing to do what I'm told to do." The actual words here involved in this verse, say that the people will offer themselves freely as gifts to their king. Thy people will be made willing. In other words, they will offer themselves as a gift to their king. Here is a total willingness For Christ to have all. It's Romans chapter 12 verse 1. What's that say? Present your bodies therefore a living sacrifice. Let me just simply say this as a a side truth but absolutely applicable to the situation. There is no such thing as being a living sacrifice without the mind and heart being thoroughly taken with the one that God has exalted to the right hand. You will never, ever be a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ until you are taken up with the one that God loves and adores and has been taken up with in His heart. I'm going to say, maybe this is a little bit more pointed, maybe some ways somewhat even harsh there is no such thing as being dedicated you ever heard that word there's no such thing as being dedicated to the Christian life there's no such thing as being dedicated to the Christian ministry which is something that some seem to have in their minds well I'm going to dedicate myself to what are you dedicating yourself to you don't dedicate yourself to an idea. You don't get, dedicate yourself to a duty. You dedicate yourself to a person. And Until your heart is taken up with Jesus Christ, you are dedicating yourself to nothing. And that's why you find that sometimes there are so many that back away from what they say they are called to do. Paul puts it this way. For to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ. It is the person of the Lord Jesus that is our all. Without the ongoing knowledge and love for Christ, we will be as those chided of the Lord in revelation that left their first love. maybe you can remember with me the Lord Jesus gathering his disciples on that seashore children have you any meat? no come and dine and in that moment the Lord Jesus turns to Peter and he asks him Peter are you dedicated to the apostleship? Huh? no, 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 wrong Peter lovest thou me? That's the question to you this morning. Lovest thou me? God the Father then guarantees to Jesus Christ those that are in love with you, those that know you, those that are truly yours, those that are given by eternal promise, those people will... Oh, may we change... Or charge our hearts. May we examine ourselves. Is that us? So my point is the effect of truly loving Christ. Will be the desire to give all as a gift to Christ. That is a spiritual law. Loving Christ. Brings the desire to give all as a gift to Christ. The Father says that's the way it's going to be. Thy people shall be willing or shall offer themselves as sacrifices in the day of thy power. To what extent? In the beauty of holiness. Here's a sanctifying work. Here's a work that makes the people of God to be what is truly Christ like. It will be that work that causes the people of God to eschew evil and love righteousness. It'll be the desire to live a separated life unto the glory of Jesus Christ and not care about the things that are going on around us. It's in the beauty of holiness. It is a sacrifice that speaks of sanctification. Well, the fourth guarantee that the Father makes to the Son. And again, I say, all of these things have been presented to Christ as a promise of God the Father. It's a guarantee of all that was promised to Him as we read in Isaiah chapter 42. You have now the fourth guarantee to the Lord Jesus. And that is the sealing of the priest. So if you're wondering what I, my points were, well, we have first the seating of the Son, the sending of the rod, the sanctifying of the people and now the sealing of the priest. Verse 4 The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. You said sealing of the priest. What do you mean? Yes. This the Father is saying, I have offered an oath. I have sealed this guarantee with an oath of my word. Hebrews chapter 6 speaks of this perpetual priesthood of the Lord. I'm going to read just a couple of verses. Listen and keep in mind the subject. See if you don't hear exactly what we're saying. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17 Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it with an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us which, hope, we have as an anchor of the soul, both steadfast, uh, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered. Again, for us entered. Even Jesus, made an high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So there it is. The father sealed with an oath, impossible to change, impossible for it to be countermanded, or it's impossible for God to lie. He has said, for a purpose, I have set you forever as the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now the reason we have to say, well, what was the purpose? Well, what did he say? He said, you are ever in this position... And I guarantee you will always be in this position. It's not going to end, nor is it ever going to be non-effectual. I put you in this position for a reason. And that reason is very plain, and that is this, that you and I need an anchor for the soul. Oh, you mean it wasn't just for something for the Lord Jesus? Oh, well, Let me say again, the priesthood of Christ is not something that he ever needs to perform for himself. His priesthood is always looking to the needs of his people. So, how is the priestly work of Christ? That to us, an anchor of the soul? Well, I say this. We have one who steadfastly and surely gains our consolation. That's what's mentioned in verse 18 of Hebrews 6. In which it was impossible for God to to lie. That we might have a strong consolation. Or rather the knowledge that all things have been put right. Before the face of our God. We have a consolation that all things are paid for. There is nothing more that needs to be answered for. Beyond that there is nothing in the way. Preventing me from knowing the grace of God to my soul. Let me ask you a question. Let me just let's just be real honest. Do you still sin? Do you need an advocate with the Father? God, the Father knew that, and as part of the guarantee of bringing the people of God home, bringing him to that place where Christ says, "I will that thou." Whom uh, those that thou hast given me will be with me where I am, the fulfillment of that, the Father knew then Christ must forever for us be a high priest, because we need something as an anchor. Ah, uh, we need someone as an anchor. And so the Father guarantees that what the Lord Jesus is doing. As our King Priest, which is what Melchizedek really means, King of Righteousness, <coughs> the Father guarantees that what Christ does as our Priest King is going to bring all the covenanted graces of God to us without fail. Am I ever going to come short of the grace of God? Not while Christ Jesus is at the right hand. Am I ever going to come to a place where God is going to look at me and with disgust throw me away? Not while the Lord Jesus is at the right hand. Am I ever going to be without? Maybe I've gone too far. Maybe I've done too much. Maybe I have been too vile. That God would forgive me. Is that going to happen? That God will not forgive me? Not while the Lord Jesus is at the right hand. The Father has guaranteed. Guaranteed to Christ. But guaranteed to us as well in Christ. That all these things will most surely happen. The guarantees of God. The Pharisees couldn't stand up to that. They knew exactly what was being said. I think... think, the Pharisees were extraordinarily knowledgeable in the words of the Old Testament law, as well as the prophecies, as well as the songs. They knew them well. And when the Lord Jesus comes to this portion of Scripture and he says this, then they automatically go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, he's got all these other things then that also apply. Uh, We're cooked. Yeah. God has guaranteed the covenant guarantees are for the glory of Christ. But they are also for the people of God. As sure as Christ receives what is promised to him, we too receive that which is promised to us in him. Or as Second Corinthians one twenty again said, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him Amen, unto the glory of God by us. May the Lord seal his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.